Good evening and welcome to From the Be All End. Uh, if last week was the live show, nobody bothered to ask for. Uh, this week, even less people asked for it, but we thought we'd do it again anyway. <laughs> um, slightly depleted squad, late fitness uh, test failed for Justin Connolly, but here with uh, the rest of the pod squad, Simon Evans, Paul Woodhouse and Chris Borden. Um, a busy week at Turf Moor on a number of different fronts, so we're going to spend uh, a bit of time over the uh, the next half hour, 40 minutes or so, giving you the rundown uh, of uh, exactly what's happening. It's mainly outgoings, I have to say, um, but a couple of very exciting developments. Uh, and let's start with those exciting developments. Uh, Burnley FC, sorry, scratch that, ALK have signed an exciting development deal with Dundee FC in Scotland. It's the uh, the partnership we've all been waiting for. Think of all the great partnerships in history. Toval and Dean, Cannon and Ball, um, I can't think of any others. Burnley How did and... that come to mind? Cannon and Ball. What could <laughs> possibly have prompted that? I cannot think why. Um, but no, in all seriousness, ALK have signed a deal, a development deal where apparently we're going to share tips on how to cut the grass, how to get the ticketing right, things like that. Um, I just hope Dundee FC are a hell of a lot more competent at ticketing than uh, than we seem to be. But um, Simon, you almost broke the internet with some of your AI-inspired imagery on the uh, From the Beyond End Twitter account. Um, this is an exciting deal, isn't it? We're told it's an exciting deal, so I'm guessing it must be an exciting deal. I'm thrilled. Uh, no, it, it's it's one of those, really, where in my day job, I, I get these kind of things passing my desk all the time. Football federations sign uh, what they call memorandums of understanding with other football federations where they say we're going to cooperate on player development and, and all this kind of stuff. Honestly, every week I see one from somewhere, you know, you, whatever, Peru with some African federation or whatever. This stuff goes on all the time. Um and people sort of put this in the same category as, as the multi-club sort of thing that, that Manchester City have done and that Red Bull have done to great effect. It isn't that yet. It, it, it isn't that because they haven't bought a stake in the club. Now, um, there are some suggestions that Dundee United's ownership group, which is also an American uh, equity firm or, or private investment firm, are looking for, for investment or looking for somebody to maybe purchase the club. Um, I don't think that's actually possible for them at the moment, given the the rules in 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 uh, with with the Premier League and the FA and UEFA and all the rest of it. But um, if that is the goal, then that is something serious to discuss at the moment. If this is just really about us saying, "Yeah, we're going to loan you," we're going to give you first option on loans of players, or we're going to move them along, it's really not that big a deal. Um, but I'm also not agitated by it. You know, I mean, we all like to have a good winch. I'm also not. I'm, all, I'm also not really going to whinge about it either because it's not a big deal, I don't think. And we've seen 
we've seen so many of these things come along, uh, even at, even at Burnley, you know, with 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 Air United and other clubs and so on. That nothing's ever come of them. So if two or three Burnley players are on loan at Dundee, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not excited, but I'm not also going into like, oh my god, what are LK up to now mode either. Yeah, I think I think we we were joking at the start, but I think it is a bit of perspective, isn't it? I mean, I, I thought it was very telling that you could only name Air United, I have to say, Simon. But there we go. Um, but we Cold, have had so Cold many Rangers, Cold Rangers, and it was the Cold Ramblers, Cold, Cold Ramblers, and Land Dudno FC Land was it? That's nah, where uh, Roy, where Roy Keane started, isn't it? Land <clears throat> it is, yeah, it is definitely. Um, Woody, I mean, Simon's not going to whinge, but we know you love a whinge. Well, you're going to take the floor and. Mate. Cut this deal apart. I think he was just scouting locations to marry off two more of his daughters at the Mormon temples up yonder for mission to Dundee, you know. <laughs> and that's pretty much all I've got to say on it. <clears throat> Excellent. So that we're just less than six minutes in and need to get the legal department involved. Fantastic. <laughs> it's a, it's a, welcome. It's a couple of, it's only a couple Allegedly. of hours away by train, according yeah. to Alan Pace's yeah. interview with Radio Lanc- uh, BBC yeah. Lancashire. Yeah. Couple of hours by train. I mean, I don't know what train. I had a quick look. I had a quick look on the train timetable. Yeah, and you're doing well if you can do it under five and a half. (laughs) Excellent, (laughs) Um, Chris. I mean, you've you've been around some of these. You know, you've reported on some of these deals in the past. I mean, you you brought up Carolina Railhawks. I just about remember the kind of uh, you know fanfare around that that didn't really come to anything. But Simon's right. I mean, you know, if it is somewhere in the Scottish Premiership, which is you know. Um, a level where they could end up playing European football. If it's a case of getting some young lads out, like Dara Costello and Owen Dodgson, who, who've both gone up there, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with it, is there? I mean, you know, it might seem a bit of PR fluff, but essentially, if we're getting somewhere where we can regularly send players who are going to get first team football, we can't really be too critical of something like that, can we? Well, no, but it's it's hardly an exciting announcement. I mean, you could do that anyway. You don't have to go into partnership with clubs. I mean, see, J Rod went up to Scotland and made his debut in the uh, in the cup at Parkhead against uh, against Celtic, and uh, you know had a you know didn't have the greatest greatest of times up there. And, you know, he's a bit a bit further uh, south, and you think of Kyle Lafferty going to Darlington and prospering there, etc. You don't need a link up, but I mean, it does Dara Costello and uh, Owen Dodgson no harm whatsoever. And I'll say, I think there were a few uh, just reading some comments over there. There were a few Rangers fans mocking Dundee, and Dundee was sort of reeling off a list of players that Rangers had taken off their hands over the years, including uh, Claudio Canigia at one stage. <laughs> but uh, they're uh, so they, I mean, we, we, we took Kevin MacDonald obviously from them in. Uh, 2009 and you know he's proved a you know a very good very good talent i don't know if they've created uh anything like as good a talent ever since but uh it's it's one of those isn't it it's like what, what they get out of the relationship with carolina Railhawks, a couple of friendlies mm-hmm. what if they got out of this relationship with landudno and air and porter down and Cobe, a few friendlies behind closed doors a couple of youth tournaments it it just We're brilliant behind over, closed doors, though, aren't we? To be oh, fair. Oh yeah, we are. To be fair, they, <laughs> we will just come over me. Well, yeah, watches we, over we, me. It's, yeah. 
we will come on to our prowess in behind closed doors friendlies <laughs> in, in a second. But um, I mean, in the summer, Simon, we we were talking about um, you know ALK and Alan Pace wanting to perhaps buy uh, buy a team. They were looking at um, one of the teams, Cotric, I think it was over in um, over in Belgium. Um, which Vincent Tan is the the owner of, or was the owner of, and, and we were kind of a little bit critical in that case in terms of look, you know, get your house in order over here financially before you start buying another club. You mentioned at the start about the the relationship and the the fact that the uh, Texan based um, financier who owns um, Dundee, Mister Keys, um, was perhaps looking for somebody to to get a stake in it. It does seem increasingly the model, doesn't it? I think, did I see somewhere that Bournemouth were looking at a link up with Hibs or something like that? It does look like teams are trying to get this multi-club model, but very few of them really ever make a success of it, do they? I mean, you mentioned the City Football Group and Red Bull. Everything else is just Brighton maybe with their kind of links that they had over in Belgium. But it is just PR fluff, isn't it, essentially? It's just... You know, one club obviously gets a bit more expertise from one side and the other club gets a little bit of player loans and things like that. It's mainly PR fluff, isn't it? Let's be honest. Well, there's always the assumption that there's some great gains to be got um, through the synergies of sharing staff uh, and expertise. They'll always say that in these agreements. Um, and no doubt, you know, there there is an element to that. You know, there's no reason why... Um, Smaller clubs, and I know people in Scotland won't like that, but I mean, these deals are between Premier League clubs and smaller clubs generally. So there's there's no doubt that smaller clubs can gain by having an association with, with a Premier League club. I'm not sure at the moment there's a lot to be gained by an association with Burnley at the moment. But, you know, in theory, if you're, you know, if... If we take a club that we probably know better, right? We think about Accrington Stanley. If we add like a proper, you know, arrangement like that with Accrington Stanley, you could you could see how you know they might take advantage of the facilities, the the coaching staff, the academy, uh, swapping academy players from different age groups to come and try out. There's, there are things you can see uh, best practices across sort of technology and all that kind of stuff, but. You know, the multi-club model as a whole, I don't like really. And I think increasingly um, people are starting to see it as a, as a part of modern football that that could undermine some quite important values in the game, I think. I mean, I look at the club that I, I supported in Hungary when I lived in, in Hungary in my 20s and, and Uipesh, they've been owned by the same Belgian company that owned Charlton Athletic for a long time and also owned another club somewhere else, I think in Belgium. Um, really distant owners, um, nothing, been no real benefits from that arrangement whatsoever, other than the feeling that the club had lost its identity and had become a sort of feeder club from somebody else. It didn't really actually feed anyone, but there was that feeling of, is that what we're here for now? You know, we used to be in the semi-final of the UEFA Cup or the Cup Winners' Cup. And now we are a feeder club for a Belgian team, you know, or Charlton Athletic. It's it's not really the romance of football, is it, to be owned by another club, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point, isn't it, Woody? I mean, we've talked a lot about, you know, what, what attracted us to, to, to Burnley when we went through our teams. You know, we could rattle off 
you know, players who we grew up watching in, in all four divisions. I think we all probably had players from all four divisions. And, you know, that that is the romance of football, isn't it? That kind of a football club rooted in its community. Um, uh, you know, the other the other one, of course, is the, you know, the Everton 777 partners who own God knows how many clubs. I've lost count of how many clubs they own. But, you know, each one kind of starts to dilute the the kind of involvement exactly. of, of, you know, that ownership group with another. And we are, you know, we take the mickey out of Alan Pace, of course, and, uh, you know, we'll continue to be robustly critical of ALK. But, you know, there is a certain, you know, there is a certain degree of, you know, Alan Pace has, and a lot of all the ALK partners have, by and large, uprooted their families from the US and moved to the area. There does feel to be some, you know, some affiliation with, the area and that is you know either you know manufactured or otherwise but you know when you start seeing these you know multi-club partnerships where there's you know dozens and dozens of clubs involved in a big web simon's right it does take away from that you know value of of what is a community asset doesn't it yeah it kind of flips it from like you say that community grassroots element which is what obviously football in the uk and invariably Europe is about, like I've spoken before, and it suddenly becomes more top-down. I mean, how how concentrated does it get? How sprawling are these little groups, you know, and do they get quite, you know, and is it just a, then a case of, like, six various groups and everybody else, you know, rolls up to those? And we don't, we don't want to see that. You'd hate that from a Burnley perspective, having to be a feeder club to the likes of City, etc. And so it can't be much fun for the likes of Dundee, you know, when they think that their halcyon days were at least 50-odd years ago and it's just another sorry, rusty nail in their co- coffin as they have to have to take, you know, second-string players from Burnley who come on second half or invariably probably don't do anything. But what happens if, like, we're in the bottom half of the championship uh, and Dundee are in the Europa League and uh, ALK own both clubs? Where's their priority then? I mean, is it totally out of the question, as ridiculous as it seems now, is it totally out of the question that in a situation like that, ALK go, you know what, if we can get in Champions League, the revenue from that is loads better. And we're, why are we pumping all this money into a championship club when we could be in Champions yeah. League? We might become the smaller club at some yeah. stage. With, with, I'm guessing, much smaller cost burden in Scottish Premiership in terms of, you know, their their wage bill, their operating costs would be a hell of a lot lower. Now, we're not suggesting for a second that that is what ALK are thinking, but but this is what it brings into, isn't it? You know, there's that. And there's also, somebody has mentioned, um, MKP Favour said, all the powers that be looking to Watford, multi-club transfers. You know, Watford are, are the kind of, the example I always think of in terms of some of the players that have gone for silly money between the clubs, and, you know, I think one player went from Watford to Udinese for, you know, a fairly handsome fee and was then loaned back to Watford. I mean, that's clearly an attempt to get around FFP, isn't it? And, and financial players. You're talking, I mean, they've, they've had some pretty elite players out of that arrangement back and yeah, yeah. forth. As you, as you say, it's not loaning a, you know, under 23 player to someone for a month or two, is it? You know, I think, I mean, um, Matty Vidra was one of the Udinese players. You know, I think like, yeah. Alexis Sanchez was at Udinese and obviously didn't go, didn't go the Watford route. But, you know, you look at the players that Udinese have had, uh, you know, over time and it's... Uh, is Grenada a, part of that arrangement as well? Are they part? Is it? Uh, I think so. I think so. Yeah, but yeah, hey, you talk about... I mean, what, a, what, a, what a, City? 
what City had. I mean, City have. I mean, did they, did they technically own Aaron Moy when he went to to Huddersfield from uh, from Melbourne? And the, you know they've had like Jack Harrison was at New York City, and but they've not. You know, he hasn't created a a conveyor belt of talent that City have stamped no. up for their side no. either. So. That's where I look at it. It's purely first team level, is it? If if that sort of relationship's in play, are we going to get assets for the first team, and and you know, and the and the uh, the partner are they going to get assets for their first team? And if not, to me, I see no absolutely no relevance in it whatsoever. What kind of sarcastic person could send a message like this? I'm just looking forward to the JJ Watt Dundee baseball caps and the new font D baseball cap. That little Alan, whoever that is, will be modelling soon. Crazy, crazy, very cynical fork out there. GST, well, very cynical <laughs> fork out there. Um, yeah, I can can just imagine that though. Um, yeah, that's an interesting comment, Casey James. Football is dead, and now our beloved club is the same as all the ones ruined the game, losing interest with it all. I'm not sure we've got to that stage yet. I think you know, uh, I, I still think the. The, the fan base around Burnley, I, I don't think would let it slip away in, in quite the same way as we've, you know, perhaps allowed other clubs or other clubs, not mentioning any names, Newcastle United have, have kind of, you know, almost gone back on their beliefs when, when the money rolls in. Um, but yeah, um, let's move on. Let's move on to um, a, a Premier League win, uh, a very rare Premier League win that we got uh, this week. Um, it's just a shame it doesn't actually count towards the Premier League. Um, and none of us could actually see it. Um, but Burnley beat Man United 3-1 in a behind-closed-doors friendly, which um, Eric Ten Hag had set up for for some of his returning players. There's a sense of deja vu here, isn't there? Because I think we beat United 3-0 at a similar stage last season. Um, is this is this a renaissance? Is this the, the signs that the hours on the training field are suddenly playing off, or is it just the fact that United are still pretty shite and were pretty shite before the winter break and are still pretty shite now? Simon? The great escape starts here, doesn't it? You know, this is it. Yeah, I mean, look at our results after that 3-0 win at, old, at uh, Carrington last year. We were on fire and went and went and got promoted. Um, it means absolutely nothing whatsoever, this game. Absolutely nothing. We don't even know who played in it. Um, we don't know if it was too halves of 45 minutes or three quarters of 30 minutes or whatever. Uh, you can't have that, can you? But it, it was, it was, it was uh, you know, we don't, it's a training exercise. It's a yeah. training exercise. I mean, you know, we can laugh about it and it's it's better than losing, I suppose, but but it really doesn't mean anything, does it? No, absolutely not. Woody, um, talking of the great escape, of course, we've got an easy game coming up uh, next, uh, not far from United's training ground down at the Etihad. Um, I, Justin keeps saying, and we can we can kind of slag him off because he's not here today, but Justin keeps saying we'll get more points in the second half than we did in the first half. Um, you're not expecting too much from next Wednesday's game, are you? Uh, no. And Justin's always drunk. That's the other thing we've got to take into consideration. <laughs> that we don't, you know. it, I mean, you, we're, going, we're going to see one surprise at some point. We always do. But I don't think it's happening next week at Main Road, you know. So... I mean, of course, it, it's dependent on um, who's fit and who isn't. Is Harlan's almost on his way back, isn't he? You know, so he'll probably just ease his way into that with a, a nice little, a nice little first half hat trick. And thanks for coming. 
Yeah, I mean, Chris, all the talk was that Haaland is nearly ready, but not quite. I mean, he's absolutely <laughs> nailed on to be in a City shirt at, at, uh, at half past seven, isn't he, on, uh, on Wednesday evening? Well, if he's nearly ready for, for Spurs on Friday night, yeah, you're assuming he's very much ready for Burnley on <laughs> Wednesday. And uh, uh, he just fills you with dread, doesn't he? He's just a, just a monster, just unplayable. You know, he ragdolled that defence in the Cup game uh, last season and uh, just a, a display of magnificent finishing you know, granted, you know, space and time that he had as well, but uh, at, at, at turf on the opening day, but uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm speaking to someone the other day. He said, Oh, I mean, City don't seem to be smashing sides this season, and well, I'm afraid they do. <laughs> yeah, they put five Wait, past uh, Wednesday, yeah, yeah, five past Huddersfield in the cup, they four in the FIFA World Club. You know, play, uh, final against Fluminense and six past Bournemouth, five past uh, Fulham. It, it, they're scoring goals for fun. And it, it I, again, it's one of those that doesn't matter whether Ireland's fit or not because they, they'll just play Alvarez and whichever of those little three magicians that they play in midfield. Or whether Stones is fit, doesn't matter. Rico Lewis can play and... A kanji can fit in, and Ake can play, and oh, they just—it's just a galaxy beyond, and it anything less than a, you know three three nil defeat is a, is a moral victory. Moral victory, Simon. I mean, Chris was rattling off some names there. I mean, we, you know, we kind of worry about who's going to play left back when when Charlie <laughs> Taylor's not available, don't we? I mean, that's you know, it's almost unfair, isn't it? It's an unfair advantage that they can. Be without Haaland, but still have Alvarez, and uh, and and you know we're struggling to see who we're going to fit into a midfield without Berger. And he's got himself on mute again. Yeah, it's it's funny, you know. I was talking to somebody yesterday about about City and how uh, how much we've enjoyed watching them over the years from a sort of neutrals point of view, but also that. I've got a bit of a feeling of, of people starting to get a little bit bored with the Premier League, you know, and I, and I do think that the fact that City just keep on winning, and even this year, Liverpool get ahead of them, and you sort of think, yeah, but City are going to win eight in a row and, at some stage and go and win it. And it, it, it's got to that stage now, I think, you know, three or four years of City dominating was all right. This is a brilliant team. We've seen this before with United. We've seen it with Liverpool in the 70s and so on. Now it's starting to feel like it's City's competition. They'll turn it on and off as they wish. They'll get a few injuries that might, you know, deflect them on their route to winning it. But I do feel now that they're, they're like killing the competition a little bit. You know, it's, I mean, we're not in that competition, obviously, but just, just generally, you know, the fact that you have a team like Spurs coming along who look a pretty decent side, uh, Postacoglu is building a, a, a nice side. They're good to watch. The fans are behind them. And you think, but are they ever going to win the league? You know, I did really. Well, you people, know, right? Was it Chris Sutton? You see that Chris Sutton comment this week saying, uh, "Well, Harry Kane's going to be jealous of of uh, Tottenham the way they're playing, and he's not going to win the league at Bayern, and he should come back." And you're thinking, Are you on drugs, maybe man? finish fourth. <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, but ultimately, any any Alucos, the problem, isn't it? You know, you know what I mean. <laughs> that, that's the case in point, isn't it? Chris Sutton, Premier League winner. Oh. 
talks What's absolute that? nonsense. I watched I watched Bayern last night, and they ain't winning the uh, the German league, and they ain't winning the uh, Champions League. And I see nobody nobody stopping Manchester City again, other than themselves. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But it is, I mean, Bayern's an interesting one and, and what's happening in Germany with, um, you know, Nathan Teller powered by Leverkusen. It is interesting because in Germany, you, you think about, um, you, you think about the clubs, a club like Borussia Dortmund, they're so up and down, aren't they? I remember kind of Klopp, I think after they won uh, the league, the season after they were really struggling and Klopp left because they were, you know, down towards the, the relegation zone and things like that. So, Leagues can stay competitive, can't they? I mean, the Italian league, Napoli winning their uh, their third title last year, but their first for however long it was. It is something weirdly inbuilt into the Premier League that we do go through these spells, don't we, where a team will get ahead and then just nobody can touch them. Start of the season, Woody Spurs looked decent. They were brilliant against us. But there's always that they lost Madison. They've lost Son now to the Asia Cup. You know, if either City don't seem to be prone to losing players and, and it affecting them, or there's something, there's an imbalance, isn't there, in, in the English league, perhaps compared to, you know, the Italian, the, the German league. I know the French and Spanish leagues are a little bit more kind of sawn off, if you will. Yeah, when you can kind of concentrate, obviously, once you have all this money that comes in, you can basically just throw... X amount of cash at a particular club, such as Newcastle, such as Man City. These, you know, and these are these are clubs, yes, with history, you know, but haven't necessarily dominated until they had money thrown at them, you know. And it's it's that total imbalance. It's that total imbalance, and we we know there'll be a slight asterisk against uh, this particular city side at some point, but it's. The likes of your Tottenham's, even they've got to have a, an absolutely startling, staggering start. They've got to make sure they keep everybody fit, you know, whereas the likes of your cities can have a little bit of a blip, lose two or three key players, mm. have folks still come in, and they're still there and thereabouts to make that push. And we see year after year. And so it's 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 not a it's not necessarily a, a level playing field in that regards. And uh, it's it's disappointing. Yeah, definitely. I should mention, of course, Girona are currently sat uh, pretty at the top of La Liga, uh, a point ahead of uh, Real Madrid, who I think we've got a game in hand. But um, but the point is, Simon, that, I mean, you obviously watch from afar. You've seen the development of MLS and things. And, you know, it's not we've not got relegation in, in American sports, of course. But I, I can't believe I'm saying this. You know, is the Super League an option to level the playing field for teams like... Um, probably level the playing field for teams like Spurs and below, um, you know, because there is this feeling that in in some of the top divisions there there's no room at the table for anybody who, you know, isn't multi million billion rich, etc. I don't know. It would have been interesting if the if the Super League breakaway had have happened, um, and they were hoping to sort of have the cake and eat it and stay in the Premier League, weren't they? But let's say they got expelled and we didn't have the big six in the Premier League. And, and Germany didn't have Bayern and Dortmund or whatever. Um, what those domestic leagues would be like? Would they have come to life with like this competition, or would they have felt that they've been left without their star attractions? I suspect the sort of global audience that there is for the Premier League uh, would have fallen off pretty significantly if those big clubs weren't there. So that would have gone. But in terms of the rest of us and the domestic sort of 
have seen. You know, if you had a season then where you had like um, Spurs and uh, West Ham and uh, Wolves battling for the title, would it be more interesting? Probably, yeah, it probably would, you know. But um, over time, would it, you then feel there's something missing? I think so, yeah. So it's it's kind of, you know... We don't want them, um, but we don't want to be without them either, really, don't we? You know, it's one of those, really. I just think, I don't know. I think, I think it's really tricky to deal with any of this. The way the the way the, the money that's come into the game. I mean, FFP. You start seeing things happening now, like Newcastle apparently having to get rid of maybe Trippier or Almiron in order to, you know, balance the books for FFP. And you think, yeah, those articles that Martin Samuel wrote in the Times saying that FFP is is anti-competitive and stops clubs coming along to challenge the likes of City and Liverpool. Maybe he has a point because, you know, Newcastle are building something quite interesting and quite good that could become a challenge to those teams at the top, regardless of what we think of the morality of, of where the money's coming from and everything. But they're going to, the FFP stopping them going out and signing more and more players and becoming part of that big elite. So, then again, if we don't have any financial fair play stuff, it's just going to be, you know, the richest team wins all the time. So, I don't so know. £40 million been spent in this Premier League transfer window so Nothing. far, with a week to go. And I think, was there something like £800 million this time yeah. last year when yeah. Chelsea signed anyone who had any ability to kick a ball whatsoever? Mm. Well, that, that, that's, the dam- that's the damning thing, isn't it? That Chelsea have... Spent what what seems like an absolute bucket load on players and got them all on eight year deals before this was made uh, against the, against the rules and spread that spread out their payments etc and they could get round it and then Newcastle all of a sudden are well looking like they're not going to qualify for the Champions League again so then you know do you you lose your Gimar Eshes and Jolinton wants more money than they can afford, etc. And all of a sudden, they're breaking the table. But let's say Trips. How, how on earth can Trips turn down Bayern Munich at 33? He can't. And from watching him last night, it'd be exactly what they're crying out for and what Harry Kane's crying out for. Yeah. If they think he's scoring a lot of goals now, wait till Trips is providing a supply line for You know who's crying out for Trips. <laughs> Sean Dyche Lyle Foster <laughs> Can you imagine that? Lyle Foster getting on the end of some of those deep crosses from crosses from deep from trips where he used to stick it in from only like 10-20 yards over the, the, the halfway line them lovely looping balls behind Sandbox, the defence yeah. oh gosh what we wouldn't that give one that, that one that Ingsy took down against was it Forrest yes killed it stone dead and oh it just like Sean Dyke said, you don't stop him, you know, any anywhere on the park doing that, do you? Just we've not seen anyone like that in this country since uh, since Beckham. No, definitely not. Um, let's move on to transfers. It seems a, a natural place to kind of move on to transfers. And um, a couple of outgoings this week: Michael Obafemi joining uh, Millwall. Um, obviously, the uh, the mass exodus up to uh, to Dundee, which we talked about. Um, Darko Cherlinoff rejoining Schalke in the uh, the German second tier. Um, it, it, it feels a bit weird, doesn't it? I, I don't want to say it's feeling like the the room's getting empty because we've still got you know plenty of players, but. Kind of Michael Obafemi's been in and around the first team squad. We've we've had obviously nothing from Darko, but 
it, it feels like some of the players that were signed uh, are now being deemed surplus to requirements. Um, it's not great, is it, in terms of, um, you know, looking at what we've got. Someone's mentioned there, 4 million twine, 3 million Oberfemi, 2.5 million on churling off. That's 9.5 million spent and nowhere near the squad. Um, kind of, we might be rewriting history by kind of reassessing the transfer dealings from last season. But Simon, you kind of probably expect that these clearances are happening so that there's room in the squad to bring players in. Perhaps the worry for Burnley fans is, is we're not being linked with half as many players coming in as we are players going out, are we? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they if there are players coming in or whether this is this is an attempt to sort of deal with the wage bill um, because they've signed a lot of players, haven't they? I mean, I counted it out last weekend that they, they in the company era we've signed thirty five players. Um, he's not been here that long, has he? Um, so. You know, and that squad, a lot of them, yeah, we've got players going out now on loan who were brought in as exciting new signings not too long ago, you know, the start of the championship season. So it's, uh, you know, Obafemi, you look at it, and I, I couldn't really tell you what 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 kind of player he is, really. I mean, we've seen bits and glimpses here and there, but it sort of feels like I've got more of a memory of Narky Wells playing for Burnley than I have of, like, Michael Obafemi. It's, it's not play. that bad. <laughs> Come on. Come on. No, but I'm not I'm not saying he's that level of player, but I, we haven't seen much of him, have we, really? No. And and no. um and it does it doesn't feel like a sort of loan deal where it's like, you know, go and prove yourself at Millwall. It feels a bit like a sort of out the door one to me, that I yeah. mean it, it might not be, but you know. Yeah, when I mean, will I... we see your likes again? You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I quite like, you know, the, the cameos he used to make last season when clearly, you know, because he'd not played a lot for Swansea before he signed because they were, you know, I think Russell Martin was the boss then, weren't he? Kind of, he knew he wanted out and wasn't really playing him. Um, But Woody, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, th- I th- for, for me, Churlinoff is the big disappointment because A, he came with quite a good reputation. I think he just got Schalke promoted. Um, when yeah. when you know help them to promotion, and actually when we saw him, he looked to offer something slightly different to Zorori and Benson, who of course were our two first choice wingers, and we'll come on to in a second. But there's a few of these players who you just think kind of. Oh, I just wonder if, given a chance, we might have got a tune out of them and and not been in the quandary which we might find ourselves in 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 certain areas. I think I think that's fair. It's they almost seem like victims of of competition for places, don't they? And then you had with Chelinoff, he obviously had that illness this past summer, etc. And he always seemed to be trying a little bit too hard when he came on, and that he had to prove too much, that he was trying to do too much. Um, and in a different Burnley era, under Dyche, arguably, he may have seen you know, more minutes and being able to develop a little bit more. And it just seems to be that you, you have to take those chances uh, under VK and uh, otherwise you're not necessarily out in the cold, but um, you you might not figure as much as uh, you'd want to. And it's just a shame. We Like we say, we don't know much about Chelinoff, really. We don't know so much about Obafemi and they just get pushed along. We may not, we may not see him again anywhere near Turf Moor. Yeah, and Chris, I mean, I mean, it's, I'd say it's pretty much 
um, nailed on that we won't see Cheerling off again. I mean, we we barely saw kind of hide the hair of him when he wasn't ill, and, and thankfully he's now over that illness. But you kind of half get the impression that both of these players will go out and do, you know, do a decent job for the clubs they, they're going out to. We've spoke before about the culture within this team of being, look, when you get a chance, you've got to take it. You know, someone like Trezor is is kind of just being thrown scraps with the odd, the odd start here and there. It, it's a bit of a weird position to be in as a footballer, isn't it? Being a, a squad player in a huge squad in a big league and basically being told you've got a 10-minute sub-appearance, knowing that actually if you don't make an impression, you'll be out of the match day squad for the next two or three games. Oh, just looking at one of the uh, one of the comments again. GST feels like a failed transfer policy, stroke scattergun approach. It feels more and more like a scattergun approach. You know, in hindsight, you go back eighteen months. Scott Twine through the door. Yeah, he had an injury, but didn't really get a, much of a look in. Egan Riley never had a kick. Uh, McNally never had a kick. Bastian bits and pieces. Uh, Murich, you know, played all season, then shown, you know, shown the cold shoulder. Uh, you know, you basically Cullen, who again, you know, has pretty much been out of the side for two months, bar uh, Berger's absence, uh, you know, through illness and and suspension, and and Vitinio, who I think probably people thought was Burnley's second choice right back going into the season after Connor Roberts's performances last season. It's what the. The the summer business from two thousand and two, yeah. I mean, it's culminating in Burnley winning the championship, but it's that that business has almost entirely gone to the wall now. It's uh, and like you say, you have got players now who were. Uh, Trezor is obviously a talent. I think he's a luxury player, and it but it is it's it's been hard for him to get any sort of rhythm and momentum without a run of games. You see what Osho got a run of games, Oderberg's getting a run of games, and you see what you can deliver in that sense. But it's like Oberfemi, he wasn't a player signed in January last year, I think, oh, we're going to the Premier League. He's a lad that Vincent wanted the, the summer before. You know, he, he, he seemed to me the perfect type, you know, physical, strong, you know, good touch, can turn, pace, aggressive. And we just haven't just haven't seen him, have we? Obviously had another with a, an injury on international duty that ruled him out at the start of the season. And uh yeah, it's just a, again. I feel that's a great shame, but you know, you bring Fafana in and then lose, yeah. lose Obafemi. You know, all it takes is an injury or suspension again, and we're light again in, in that area. But uh, and still, no sign of a left back. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, left back. I I, I did get it. Sorry, but did mention about the uh, you know left back being the problem area. Now, you know, I do get it. There's there's probably more right backs and left backs just due to kind of um, the number of right footers and left footers. And I've not got any scientific evidence for that, but um, just looking, Simon, I mean, the, the latest, um, the, the latest rumor today is that Birmingham city are interested in a loan deal for Manuel Benson. I mean, I, I think we were, we were kind of almost, you know, reaching for the whiskey and the tablets last summer when we thought we might lose Manuel Benson and, and Sasha, friend of the podcast, came on and said, no, no, don't worry. He's not going AC Milan. We had an exclusive from Sasha. I mean, if he pitches up at Birmingham City, I mean, that is the indignity <laughs> of pitching up at Birmingham City after being linked with AC Milan. 
it is weird, isn't it? It is very, very weird um, what's happened with him and him and Zorori. Do you expect to see one or both of them out the door before the transfer window um, to quote Jim White, slam shut? Because it never shuts quietly, does it? It would be bizarre after like all this speculation about Benson if if uh, if he's if he's in our starting lineup in in February, wouldn't it? I mean, it would it would be bizarre. I mean, he's he's been linked with, you know, Leeds United, Birmingham City, South uh, Hull City, City. You know, I mean, half the championship's been linked with Manuel Benson. You know. I mean, what can you say? I'd like to see him play for Burnley. I'd like to see him have been given a chance this season. I wanted to see how he'd do in the Premier League. Um, but, you know, for whatever reason, Vincent either doesn't think he's up to it or or he's not been fit enough. We, we don't really know how much of the time he's yeah. not been picked and how much he's been injured either, do we? You know, Very which true. is, you know, I mean, in the days when Chris Borden was at the Burnley Express, that question would have been asked, wouldn't it? You know, well, it's not been answered, it still is. Been asked, to be fair yeah. to the lads, it still is being, but, I but think not being get, answered. I, I think they get short shrift. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we all used to laugh and joke with 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 Sean, and he's yeah, he's on the grass. So you're either smoking pot or he were uh, he were a good 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 couple of weeks away from uh, from full fitness, yeah. and they had to be diet fit, etc. And uh, but. Uh, no, there's there's like a reticence to speak about our injuries, and yeah, you can understand like you don't want to give opponents a leg up, but uh, it's just nice. The fans are crying out for information, and it's you know they're they're in the dark. Yeah, yeah. So no, it'd be a, it'd be a shame if Benson goes, but it would be a surprise if he doesn't now, wouldn't it? Now we've got a bit of a special treat for you, exclusive to the podcast, not on last night's live show. Uh, it's the first part of our two-part interview with Burnley legend Michael Duff. Uh, Chris and Simon sat down with Michael uh, just after we'd finished recording last night's live show uh, to discuss his time at Burnley, his time in management and what he thinks of Vincent Company's team. Here's part one. Michael Duff, thank you very much indeed for joining us today on From the Beoland. How are you doing? Yeah, no, great. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good at the minute, so it's uh, all good. Excellent, excellent. So let's let's just start off with how you ended up arriving at Burnley in, in the first place. We're going back to the days when Steve Cottrell uh, was, was the manager. Um, you were at Cheltenham Town. How how did that move uh, come about, and what did you think of it at the time about a move to Burnley at that stage in your career? Um, well, I'm honest. I thought obviously the obvious connection was Cots. Cots Cots uh, brought me through non-league into the football league. Had me as a 17-year-old, and we had three or four promotions together. Uh, he actually tried to sign me for Stoke uh, when he went to Stoke, um, but the club at the time wanted too much money. It fell through. Um, and then when he, he went to Burnley, obviously there was a big transition at the time. I think it was the ITV digital had just collapsed. So there was no money at the club and I think they could get me for 30 grand. I think they got me for in the end. But at that point I was 26 um, and I'd, I'd had people watching me from, from the age of 19. I was supposed to be going here, there, everywhere. And I ended up getting 350, 360 games for Charlton and thinking I've, I've missed the boat. Um, so I, I think I came... So I snapped his hand. I was on holiday uh, with the now wife 
um, and some friends, and it was, do you want to come? I was like, yeah. And I think the I think I actually signed for a hundred pound a week more than what I was on in League Two, but it it was wow. it was the opportunity. It was it wasn't anything to do with the money. It was like I've been promised this, you know, I moved to Stoke, and you go in there, going on trial to Liverpool, all these sorts of things, and they'd all fallen through. And but when you get to twenty six, you think, well, I said I'm just a League One, League Two player now. So it was the opportunity as much as anything else. I was desperate to come. And the fact we only had eight eight players at the time helped. So it meant I played quite a lot in the first year when I probably shouldn't have done. Yeah, I mean, a lot of players I've talked to from, from that era who, who, who were at Burnley will talk about the facilities not being as good as, as they'd hoped and, and, and so on and getting changed in one place and jumping in a car and going and training somewhere else and so on. But going to Burnley from, from Cheltenham, what, what, what did it feel like a big step up for you going to Burnley at that stage? Oh, it was huge. Um, so I I moved into the hotel with Frank Sinclair and um, John McGrail. So if you go back 20-odd years, like I said, Frank had just been at, obviously, Leicester and Chelsea and John McGrail had been at Ipswich playing in Leicester. And there was little old me. I, I, you know, I still speak to John McGrail now. I, I still say that he was the reason why I ended up making it at that level because I learned so much from him in terms of just how to conduct yourself, how to be a good pro, um, because I was I was like a little kid walking around. I know everyone else was moaning about the facilities and things, but like I said, it was it was the opportunity. I thought it had all passed me by. So to 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 have that opportunity, uh, you know, I, I was going to take it. So I, I was like a sponge. Um, like I said, it definitely wasn't for for money or anything like that. It was I, I'd had quite an upward trajectory quite quite quickly. Um, then it sort of plateaued a little bit. And then I got a chance to to make another jump, and it was, yeah, it was. It didn't bother me jumping in. But my car was crap anyway, so we're jumping in. Dirty, but <laughs> I normally, you know, they were all jumping in Mercs and BMWs, and I, I can't remember what I was driving at the time, Mitsubishi or something like that. I think it was. So it was, uh, yeah, they were quite happy to jump in my uh, banger. Is it yeah. better than Barnsley's smart car? Um, yeah, I think anything was better than that. But, but saying that, Wade's, <laughs> Wade, Wade Elliott's A3, Wade Elliott's A3 was infamous as well. So he was a Premier League player driving around in a Y-Wedge A3. Uh, but he was the tightest man in football, so. <laughs> but, I mean, you'd already broken into the Northern Ireland squad, hadn't you, at, at Cheltenham? But was there any sort of pressure to play at the, at the higher level? Or were they you know, sort of happy where you were, really? Um, no, that, that, that was the, that's what I mean. It's, I had a lot of people watching me. Um, I'd managed to get international recognition in League Two, which is difficult. Now Northern Ireland were in a great place, but it's still international football. Still, you know, still playing with or training with Premier League players, and, and you sort of feel a bit, a bit of a spare part because you just feel like you're not good enough. And you know, you fast forward a day and you're at a Championship club, and all of a sudden you feel a little bit more comfortable in your own skin because well, I'm a Championship player now, even though you've not improved at all because it's it, it's it's just the stigma attached to it. So that's what I mean about. Um, you know, thinking I'd missed the boat, it's. I thought it passed me by. So I was, you know, as soon as Cots rang me, like I said, it wasn't a negotiation. It was like, yeah, yeah, I'm coming. When, when, when do you want me? Where do you want me? And you know, we, I think we had eight players at the time. I remember the Cots because I used to be a good runner, believe it or not, um, pre-season. So Cots, I remember the first thing he said to me he said, just make sure you're at the front of all the running. So I think <laughs> in, 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 my, in my first two or three weeks, I think um, I won every race. Just trying to put your marker down that you know I belong yeah. here. You remember going to Austria? I remember you sort of getting on the coach. I mean, that was the first year we'd ever been away with the uh, the first team, and 
him knocking on our doors at stupid o'clock in the morning saying, get, it, get up, you're running. You're running with the lads. You're like, jeez. <laughs> yeah, it, I think that was for his benefit more than anything to get his own working because that was that was the first of normally three sessions a day. Um, but no, it's, it, it was good Austria. But I, I really liked Austria. It was a bit out of the way. And it wasn't like all the all singing, all dancing like they all get now. It was a bit spit and sawdust sort of place. But it was mm. it was good. And it brought the players together as well. So, I mean, sorry, that point, is- sorry, sorry. So I, was, I always remember uh, watching Steve drilling the back four. In particular, is that sort of where you, where you, where you ironed everything out initially, and you worked ever so hard that uh, that week? I think I, I think um, I think if you go back to those those years, like I said, the the size of the squad, the the budget that we had or we didn't have, it was a case of just being organised and just trying to give yourself a chance to stay in the league. I think we were favourites for relegation the year I came, um, and that was if you look at the teams that ended up being built from that team you know, the team that got promoted and things like that, it was based on sort of a solidity, um, an organisation sort of thing. And then obviously Coyle came in and sort of freed it up a little bit, but that that structure was always there from Steve. And he'll tell you now that he evolved after that. He went to Bristol City and they played 3-5-2, got 100 points and played total expansive football. But at that time it was, well, the famous relegation. We've got no players. We've got untested players and young players, people like Chappie and people like that. So it was a case of, well, how do we survive? And it started with, right, a solid a solid base. So, yeah, there was a lot of work put into the structure of the team. Yeah, I was going to say that a lot of people now, when they look back on that time, even though there was that long stretch where results weren't happening and there was a lot of draws and so on, and um, people do look back on it now as being the sort of foundation for how Burnley uh, became a Premier League club eventually. I mean... At that time, though, when you when you're doing it, did it just feel like battling for survival, or did did you have the sense that this is something good is going to come from this, even if it's with a, a, eventually a different manager? Um, I don't think you think as a player, you don't think about the next manager or anything like. That. You're just trying to, like I said in the early years, I, I was just happy to be there, not happy to be there, but happy to be there and and not just making up the numbers, trying to trying to compete and, and fight for my spot and prove myself. That's that's why I was there. Reflecting on it back now, it's I think there was only probably I don't know was it Pato and Chris Eagles maybe that started the Wembley game that weren't Steve signings. You'll know better than me. So it was almost like the the structure was built by Steve, and then Coyley sort of released the shackles a little bit and let us play with a little bit more freedom. And they added a little bit of stardust in terms of Pato. And I thought I don't know what they paid for Pato a million quid or something. Um, but then when we did lose the ball, it was that that organisation was almost drilled into us that Coyley didn't even need to talk about that because it was already done. It already been uh, preloaded. So I think it was a perfect sort of a perfect storm, really, in terms of getting the, the sort of the solidity and, and the freedom that they brought. And obviously Coyley brought that out of us. Yeah. Yeah, we're looking forward to talking to him. We, we've been in touch with Owen and he's, he's promised that he'll come on and... Uh... And have a reflection, a reflection on that time, but that, that'll be a long show. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, um, in terms of you know different managers, and we're probably asking you this about everybody you work with, but um, was Steve a particular influence on you? Is he someone you've kept in touch with when you started your own management m- management career? Yeah, I think the two the two obvious influences in my career is are Steve and Daichi. Um, Steve, because he got hold of me as a 17-year-old in non-league, managed to drag me through the foot into the football league. Um, 
and then took me into the championship. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I said, I think I did okay for him. Um, you know, I, he managed to sign me for 30, 30 grand. I played for him to get nearly four hundred games for the club and I was, I was a hundred pound a week more, but that, at the early part of my career now, uh, and then at this more, I still speak to Steve, you know, he's, he's still at Cheltenham every week. I, I, I'm, I'm in Cheltenham now. Um, but more the managerial side of it when I went to the side I'm in now, that was more Daichi just because of the age I was at when I met him. Um, mm. He gave me brilliant access. I, st I still speak to him regularly. I'm actually supposed to be going up to Everton in a couple of weeks uh, just to just to see them all. So he's the one I sort of bounce things off a lot more in terms of not the way we want to play. I, I know how I want to play. Um, mm. But more the man management. He's been through situations that I'm, you know, even situations I've just gone through now, and it's 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 managing those sorts of things. So that he's the one I lean on more on the manager side. But if it wasn't Steve, I might not be sat here now. Is I was knocking around in non-league football, so I've, I've got a hell of a lot to uh, to owe him. Mm -hmm. Chris, what, what what was it about Steve, Michael? Obviously, he had that sort of that man management about him. You know, he, he, I could I could see why players would want to go through a brick wall for him, sort of thing. Was that was that part of it? And obviously, his coaching prowess as well, where he organised. I think um, I think. You know, uh, He's just been appointed at a new job today, but I think he's got 900 games. I think the clubs, you look at the clubs that he's had, I think one thing he is definitely, Steve, some people like him, some people don't. Um, but there's no doubt and he can coach and he can pick a player. Uh, mm. There's absolutely no doubt about that. The thing that he'll always tell you about me is that when he met me when I was 17, we used to, we used to play head tennis in the car park at Cheltenham. Um, and it's a silly little thing, but they used to beat me all the time, but I used to come back every day. And he still talks about it now. He said, I... The thing I liked about you, I used to beat you, but you came back every single day until I got to a point where I used, I, I used to beat him. And he still goes back to now that, that that was the trait in me that you can keep knocking me down, coming back, and I'll keep coming back until I win because I was that's where I was dogged. So, yeah, quite a lot of half times it was he was in my face telling me how rubbish I was, but I reacted to, well, I'll prove you wrong. And that, and, and that's the thing, and that's that's always been a trait in me, trying to prove people wrong constantly, whether it's whether you're good enough to play in the championship, whether it's coming back from a knee injury, whether it's 37 playing in the Premier League, it's it's constantly trying to prove people that I am not as bad as what you think I am. <laughs> I saw, saw a bit of that in in Austria. He, he got me to do something I'd never have done in a million years. If you remember the you know jumping off the the diving board in the uh, whitewater yeah. rafting, and he got in my head because I think remember uh, Daz was working for the. Telegraph at the time, he wasn't with the club, uh -huh. and uh, he just said he, Stephen said he, Daz, Daz, he was game for that. He, he jumped off the uh, the springboard, and uh, Steve said, Are you gonna let the fucking telegraph beat you? And I was like, No, no, I'm not actually. No, no, <laughs> went up there, and, and I'd never have done it, I'd, you know, wouldn't have done it ever again, never done it before. But he got in my head, and uh, I could you could see, uh, I'd say, he just. He, he was sort of saying that on, on cold nights in, in in like November, this is what will pull pull the lads together, sort of thing. You know, the, the, you've got each other's backs, and you you know you prepared to do that sort of thing. You know. Yeah, I think there was a lot of that sort of siege mentality, sort of you know, it's us against the world type sort of thing, which is you know, it sort of fitted into the the demographic of the town as well, where it's you know us against everybody. So I think that that worked quite well and. He's probably, probably underappreciated a little bit at Burnley because those three years mm. that he was here, or two and a half years, what it was, that you know he he kept the club afloat. 
because they could have quite easily gone under. Um, and then it's the, you know, you talk about foundations of foundations. It was like a real sort of rock bed of, of, of what's gone on in the last 20, well, probably the last more 15 years. But I think, um, you know, obviously I know intimately what, what he did and what he didn't do, but he, he, he sort of did that to people. He made it think, well, if I'm doing it and he's doing it, you're doing it as well. And you, and you felt left, you felt if you didn't do it for him, it's all like you said, if, it, if you hadn't done it, you'd have felt left out. So it's, Unique, a unique sort of talent, really. You said yeah, it. Chris, it Chris Morden running it. through walls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like not not only had an eye for player, it it did. I think he sort of helped help negotiate with a lot of signings as well. I mean, he got Addy over the line and he paid less than he should have done and things like. He was always sort of wheeling and dealing in that respect. <laughs> yeah, no. He's when Steve makes his mind up, he's pretty. Um, bullish I think is probably the best word uh, which is why sometimes he rubs the people up the wrong way but he's so because he is so intense you know he, he does he's he lives and breathes it you know like like was just said he's just been announced at Forest Green which is only down the road from me and he, he's definitely not doing it for money you know he's made mm. his money and, and the clubs that he's done it but it's it's just it's either in you or it's not and it's it's in him he, he, he wants to work um but yeah th- those those like you say some of the players, you know, people, even like people like Gary Cale, he plucked him as an 18 year old before anyone had seen anything. And you look at the career that he went on to have, and you can see that pretty quickly. But he seemed to see it before anyone else, even myself. I don't think anyone saw me a 30 grand sign in playing 400 games. Um, so yeah, and there was loads of them along the way. I think if you look at his ins and outs, I'd imagine he made more than what he spent, like I said, which helped keep the club afloat for those that vital three years. Talk about you see players that were versatile as well. You, you obviously, you know, the size of the squad you had to play different. You see, you played right back a lot of the time, uh, you know, under Steve, and you played played centre forward as well, didn't you, against Reading that time, if you remember? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, was, I talked to someone the other day about that actually because I played I played twice up front in League One for Cheltenham and scored two. Um, but I played up front. But that that Reading team wasn't bad. I think they got about 107 no. points that year, didn't they? So yeah, I think me and Kyle Lafferty up front weren't going to damage them at any point. I think we got beat three now. Um, but yeah, that, but you know, Branch it was probably the epitome of playing everywhere. Um, and, and like you said, we, we we had probably had a squad of 15 or 16. Really, there was a few kids along the way that sort of made up the numbers. But in terms of actual minutes and and people playing, it was all hands to the pump and not many people and training on a cabbage patch as well, which didn't help. Then Owen Coyle comes in. I mean, whenever we've spoken to anyone about, about Coyle and his, his management style and so on, the first thing people say is that he, he made everyone feel, you know, 10 foot tall and he was a, a great motivator and so on. What, but it's never quite that simple. It doesn't seem to me, from from my experience of talking to people, that that when a new manager comes in, everyone's excited about it. When you've had an established manager like that, how was that transition? Were, were people really excited, and did they buy straight into to what Owen was trying to do, or was there an adjustment time there? I think. Well, I was slightly different because I was injured, so I'd done my knee in the August. I think Owen Coyley came in in the November, was it, or something like that? So I was out for the best part of a year. So he'd obviously, he'd say all the right things to me, knowing that I wouldn't be playing for eight or nine months anyway. So I think that might have been a factor why I didn't actually play that much under, I played quite a lot under him, but not as often as what I would have liked because I, w- I wasn't really there when he, when he first came in, if that makes sense. But he, no, but he came in and he was a breath of fresh air. 
and it was you know you look back now and I think we had a brilliant dressing room I think he walked into so again you talk about what Steve did he built a brilliant dressing room um and and, and the dressing room ran itself and the structure and the framework of the team sort of ran itself so Coyley comes in and he's a bundle of energy and he's like right we're doing it and obviously he was at an age where he could join in and you know, we do crossing and finishing. He's involved in every part of it. He's passing, he's crossing, and he's finishing at one point. Um, and and it, he's sort of like, just just go and enjoy yourselves. Uh, the, the, the one that jumps out is the, uh, well, there's probably two things, is the Chelsea game that we, that we won in the League Cup. So we went down to London, and I remember putting all the Chelsea players up on the screen. And you know we have strengths and weaknesses, and it was like Chelsea weaknesses. And it was I'm sure it was pre-planned looking back on it now. But I can't remember who the analyst was at the time. But he took, he went, take that down. He went, they haven't got any weaknesses. He went, so what? Let's just, let's just go and have a go. Let's have a go, eh? And we end up going and win on penalties. And it's it's sort of like we've, we've just gone to Stamford Bridge, and he's like, I don't care what they are. Let's just have a go at them. And 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 again, he made you feel. And it wasn't till he left that we all realised that we're not actually that good. But it's <laughs> not. But it, but it wasn't until he left because we used to go into games thinking, oh, we'll win this. And that's what the second point I was going to make was the playoffs. We knew we were getting promoted that year. There was absolutely mm. zero doubt. And I'd be surprised if you could find anyone in that group that was, well, we've got to get through Reading because they're not bad. And then well, Sheffield United, there wasn't any of it. It was like, right, well, we've got in the playoffs. We're going up. And that wasn't an arrogance. That was just the, the sort of the camaraderie that he built. And the, there was just zero negative doubts in terms of, this is what we are, right? You five attack, you five stay at the back. We've got the best, he, kept, he always said, we've got the best dribblers in the league. So it was the back four and Greza, and they're at you five, just do what you want. We've got the best dribblers in yeah. the league, go and enjoy yourselves. And, uh, you know, how, how early did you know, Duffall? How, how early did you know? Just when you got in the playoffs or earlier in the. A lot of people. No, I think it was, I think it was, uh, I can't remember now, my memory's terrible. I think, was it Bristol City we beat on the last day of the season to get in the playoffs? Yeah, yeah, 4 0 at home, yeah. Um, Because I, again, I was lucky. I was at the team at the time because we had Reese Williams. But obviously, he's, his, uh, luckily for me, his, um, his loan ended during the, for some reason, they didn't do it during the extended for the playoffs, (laughs) which I was quite pleased about. Um, But no, there, there was a, there was just a feeling of, I remember we went to Portugal. Uh, went to Portugal, made a big night out. Mm. Had a big night out, and I remember Greza went mad. Greza and Wade went mad because Greza had been beaten in the playoffs about eighty-four times at that point, I think. And uh, he went, he went mental. Like, what are you doing? You, you know, we've got our biggest games of our lives coming up. And I'm like, no, no, we're we're going to go out and enjoy ourselves. This, we're all right. Don't worry about us. And he tells you now. He said he was over because he'd been damaged so many times yeah. by getting beaten. Yeah. We were like, ah, we're all right, mate. This is what we do because we were really close. We, we, you know, it was a bit uh, twenty odd years ago, so we used to go out and have a drink together quite a lot, but uh, not so much. It wasn't quite the Arsenal Tuesday night club, but it was like, no, we're all right. And it was, it was almost on that trip. Where it's like, no, we're, we're going to be fine here. Yeah. Don't change what we do. We, you know, we didn't start training any harder or any less or doing more work on this or more. We just did what we did: we crossing, finishing, five asides. Energy, 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 camaraderie, and obviously went on to have quite a good day at Wembley. <laughs> I say that carries you so far. I mean, you sort of, you, you know, the decent first half season as well at the t- at the top level until uh, obviously you know Bolton come a calling and he couldn't he couldn't turn it down. It was that no, sort well, of the uh, yeah. 
that that sort of, that that I genuinely believe that we'd have stayed up that year if we only stayed. Yeah. Um, and that's no slant on Brian Laws at all. That was it was a unique group. It was we did things that don't work at football clubs. We were eating donuts on Fridays. Yeah. We were drinking cans of iron brew on a Friday. It was all team spirits. You talk about structure and you know patterns of play and detail in set play. We didn't do any of that. It was it was almost like a, a crazy gang type mentality. I'm not yeah. saying we did the extreme things, but it was that it was that sort of feel amongst the place. And, and obviously Brian came, and I always remember. And I, I actually felt a bit. You look back now and you feel a bit sorry for him. I remember on the top pitch, and it was. If it's not broke, you know, it's not broken, lads. We're not, I'm not going to try and re- reinvent the wheel. Mm. And we did a training session, and someone crossed the ball, and all three midfielders and all three centre forwards were in the box. He's like, "Whoa, I don't want that." And it's like, well, "You just said you're not going to change it." But that's the way <laughs> Owen was. He was he was gung ho. But mm. I, you know, I'm on the other side of the fence now. I'd be like, "Well, I don't want six people in the box and the left back crossing it because where's everyone else? We've got three men for the rest of the half." But it was so it was a really difficult group to come into because. Well, it's always hard to go in when we didn't want him to leave. You know, we, we, we didn't want Owen to leave. And the, the irony is, you know, you fast forward 10, 12 years and Bolton are in League Two and Burner in the Premier League or in the yeah. Europe Cup, whatever it is. So, but, um, you know, obviously he had a pull to that. He did what was right for him. Um, but, yeah, it sort, of, it sort of took the legs away from us. And I don't think Brian really had a chance, to be honest. Did it need, like, an, another effervescent character really that uh, you know just to keep that spirit high well I think um, it's, it's hard to say now I think anyone that come in after Owen would have been would have found it difficult just because it was such a unique group in terms of the dressing room the, our daily habits which weren't great but they were good in a weird sort of way um, yeah, I think anyone coming because because we were going well we would have questioned anything because we we liked the way it was. Footballers don't like change, and it might have been for the you know Eddie Eddie struggled at the start. Eddie Howe, you look where he is now. He came in into an old dressing room again, and it's like, what do you mean? There's cans of iron brew on a Friday. I'm not having that. And we're like, no, that's what we do. <laughs> and now he was doing it all right, but that we didn't we didn't like the change, and that's why Eddie was so ruthless. He got rid of everybody over thirty. Apart from me, somehow I don't know how I survived, to be honest. But, <laughs> um, but because he was quite a young manager at the time, so he had to be. So no, I, I, I need to just clear the decks here, and, and and that's what he did, because it was such a unique dressing room. It's an acquired taste that iron brew, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's not for me, but um, I definitely got a taste for. I definitely got a, a taste for Krispy Kremes. I know that Krispy Kremes. I remember sp- speaking to Owen at the the hotel in uh, Cumbernauld. Uh, yeah. and it was. I was just sort of. We, I used to do a sit down with a manager before the season, and uh, I'd, I'd gone to the bar. I said, "Yo, can I get you? Can I get you a drink?" Or you know, famously, he didn't drink drink alcohol. He just, "Yeah, get me an iron brew." And I didn't know if he was just taking the Mickey at me. It's like this stereotypical. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you, you, you seriously, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, like, okay, fair enough. End up having iron brew ice cream on that trip. That was... <laughs> Well, that was that was that was the brilliant thing with the coin. He didn't drink, but he loved the lads going out and socialising yeah. together. You know, he, he would come out with you, and he'd be drinking coke most of the night or iron brew, and um, but he just loved watching the lads interact with each other. You could see he got like real enjoyment out of the lads spending time together. And just can, going can, back can to you, that, the, well, go on, Sam. Just going back to that that bit with Brian Lords coming in because at the time it was like it was quite difficult for fans as well because. 
um, like my generation, we saw Brian Laws as a player, and he was quite a popular player at Burnley. You know, and it was a good, good right back, wasn't he? And and uh, and and I felt sorry for him a bit at the time, but he, he did feel a bit like a sort of you know when when Brian Clough went into Leeds after Don Revy, and they made the film about that. You know, was there a degree of 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 the players not accepting him, or was it just that it was never going to be the same without Coyle there and that group? I think uh, probably a little bit of both, because I think ultimately you've got to remember we were a mid-table Premier League team mm. at the time when Owen went. So I think the players, I don't like, obviously, Lords, I still speak to Lordsy now. You know, it's um, he was one of the first people that ran me when I'd just been sacked at Swansea. But I think I think they'd, he'd just been sacked at Sheffield Wednesday, who were near the bottom of the Championship. Yeah. So then to walk, so I think, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I think everybody thought they could have got a bigger name, whether that's right or whether it's wrong. Um, so I, I think that was the sort of underwhelming feeling, probably from the supporters and the players, that, it, well, if it isn't going to be Owen, if they'd have brought in a, a name, whether that's right or whether it's wrong, then you might go, oh, OK, then I get that now. We are a mid-table Premier League team. But it was almost felt like, well, we're appointing a championship manager. Mm. And I don't know whether that's a sublime. That wasn't a conscious. We were having those conversations in the dressing room, going, "Well, he's only ever managing the championship." But I just, I think the whole feeling around the club, and like I said, he walked into a unique set of circumstances um, in terms of the group that he walked into. But yeah, I, I think we would have stayed up with Corley. Um, I think it was. I'm in. I'm on that side of it now, so I, I get it. And I think it was a really, really tough gig for him. 